Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. guest today is Alex Gary, the Director of Athletics at Western Carolina University. Alex is the first black athletic director in the Southern Conference. He came to Cullowee all the way from Corvallis, Oregon, but was a student in the early 2000s as a baseball player for the Catamounts. Welcome to Going Deep, Alex. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you guys, and I look forward to the conversation today. So could you tell us a little bit about, there's there's blessings, and then I imagine there's some obstacles as well. And when you go away and then you come back to a place that you love so much, like Western North Carolina. So could you maybe take us a little bit through your history, where you grew up, and then kind of what lured you back to Cullowee? Absolutely. So um, I grew up an hour and a half from here, maybe two hours from here in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, my parents are still there. Uh, we moved to Charlotte at thir- when I was 13 years old and went to high school there and was fortunate enough to, to come to Western Carolina as a baseball student athlete in 2001. Um, loved my experience here. I did transfer after my junior year to, to go to school at Virginia Commonwealth University. But obviously, Cullowee always had a special place in my heart. Some of my best friends um, are still my, my groomsmen in my wedding. I met uh, through Western, my best man I met through Western and talk every single week. Uh, also former student athletes, but yeah, I had a chance to move around the country quite a bit, which, which was an unbelievable experience, a huge blessing for me. Uh, I was drafted by the Seattle Manors out of, uh, out of VCU in 2005, played a couple of years in the minors, and then started to really figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Went back to UNC Charlotte, did my MBA, um, because I was told if you want to be able to run an athletic department one day, you need to understand business. And that, that's exactly what this is. Um, worked at UNC Charlotte, helped them start a football program uh, uh, in the kind of the early 2000s, I guess, mid to later 2000s. I had a great opportunity to go to the University of Michigan and continue my intercollegiate athletic career working in fundraising. Took that on to the University of Maryland after about four years um, and, and did some of the same things took more of a leadership position uh, in sports supervision and ticket operations, as well as continuing to do the fundraising thing. And then got a great opportunity uh, at Oregon State University, serving on a senior team there, reporting to the director of athletics there, met my beautiful wife there, which was which was uh, probably the real reason uh, I was able to be guided in that direction and take that job. Um, but, you know, after a, a couple, couple and a half years there, almost three years there actually, uh, one of my former um, uh, good, good friend of mine, uh, who's one of my groomsmen, played basketball at Western Carolina University, called me and said, hey, you know, uh, Western's looking for a new athletic director. And I got a little nervous because this was the one. 
this this was the one that uh, I always kind of saw myself in and coming back home and had such great experiences here. Uh, and and I'm, I'm still so happy to be here. I think that, as you mentioned, there are some pluses and minuses uh, to coming back home. Many more pluses than minuses. I guess if, if one thing that uh, would be uh, kind of a, a, a tough part about coming home, especially being at some of the places that I've been, some of the larger institutions that I mentioned before, it's, it's me governing uh, myself on our expectations of how quickly we can get this thing turned around. Um, when, when you've been at some bigger schools and, and you see things that, that, we, that, that you know that we can do better to help further our program, like, you know, investing in things like creative services and, and not always having the financial means to do something uh, has been a challenge, but, but, but it's been a challenge that really excites me. Um, again, it's, it's, this is a place I'm very familiar with. Uh, on my interview, I remember saying the executive assistant, who's my executive assistant, who was here when I was a student here, um, our equipment manager, our fellowship of Christian athletes leader, uh, I saw all those people in my interview. They weren't part of my interview, but just walking through the building, I recognized them. And so uh, that's that's been really cool. Um, my wife found a fantastic job in Asheville, and she works a good bit with my college roommate's wife. Um, and they, they had no, there was no introduction there. Okay. They were just, we're, we just have some familiarity with people in the region. And so uh, that, that was kind of neat. Um, but being able to, to speak with donors and speak with student athletes about my personal knowledge of this place are, are all really good things about being back. That's, that's really neat. I do believe that when, you know, when doors open and paths are cleared and connections are made, you, that's when, you know, like, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is, this is where I'm supposed to be right now. So I wonder like if there, if there are things about the institution, I, I realize it's, it's familiar, it's family in a lot of ways, it's home. Um, but I also think, you know, somebody who's, by the way, you're moving around like a football coach, I want to say. <laughs> I started to get PTSD, thinking about all the moves that we did through the years. But um, are there other things about the institution? Because we're going to get into the conversation here soon. Just There's been a lot going on since you got there. And are there other things about the institution and its commitments that made you feel like this is a place where I know my leadership will be um, appreciated. I know there will be co-conspirators and collaborators who want to do transformational stuff. I mean, this is a really interesting time in, in college athletics. Um, and it's a really interesting time to, to be in leadership in college athletics in an institution that's not one of the power five schools, but a place where you might have some room to be, you know, kind of more creative, more transformative. I'm just wondering if there are things about Western that you're like, yeah, their commitments line up with, with some of my visions about what a great college athletics program can look like. Yeah, I think that one of the things that drew me back to Western was the fact that I, I saw so much potential, but I also saw a program that hadn't reached that potential. Um, when, when you look at our campus now, it's changed so much from when I was a student in terms of the buildings and facilities that, that are here. Uh, but unfortunately, many of the athletic facilities have not have not changed uh, uh, at that same pace. Funding athletic facilities and funding academic buildings, there's a completely different model for that, as many people know. And so 
to be able to come here, take the experiences up that I've learned at many other institutions and come here and really make an impact and, and, and help raise the face, not only of our institution, but also Western North Carolina, tell some of the stories about the great opportunities that exist for people that want to come here and be part of something special. One of the things that our coaches always talk about is that, you know, once we get prospective student athletes or recruits to come to campus, um, they end up falling in love with it. But the challenge is how do we get them to come to campus? And so I mentioned earlier, you know, investing more in creative services to tell those stories and really open up our doors and show people uh, what they can be a part of is something that I want to do. But, you know, I think being able to come here, Western's not a school that I followed closely once I left. I didn't check the scores of every football game and, and things like that. I did pay attention a little bit more attention to baseball since I was a, a baseball player here. But come, being able to come here, um, a place that I was familiar with, a place that, that I knew changed my life from when I came in at 17 and left at 20, to be able to have that same impact on other individuals, young people that are going to be from, from the state, the region, that are going to be going through some of the similar things. Those are a couple of things that make coming back here attractive to me. Take us back to this summer. Again, you arrive in campus in May. Uh, you get married on August 18th. And lo and behold, we're approaching, well, a fall football season of sorts, but the fall, the, the football team is still preparing. Uh, when all of a sudden five players led by a young man, Jalen McMillan, a sophomore, uh, a safety on the football team, come to coach Spear, uh, Tiger, who's a good friend of mine, and uh, you and talk about what the football team can do uh, with, well, this summer that was uh, really a tense summer in terms of uh, racial relations. And Western Carolina had had a couple of episodes as well that even heated up this tension. And uh, Alex, I believe, are you the first uh, black man who's been the athletic director at Western Carolina? I think I'm the first black full-time athletic director in the Southern Conference. Yes. Um, which, would, which would also be consistent with being the first black athletic director at Western Carolina. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. so talk about this comes right onto your plate, like yeah. immediately. And I was so impressed with your effort and the students' efforts that I thought Western North Carolina was one of the athletic departments that was kind of out in front of uh, this issue. But I'd sure love to hear what you thought about the situation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, first of all, what I do want to do, and I, it's, it's, it's warranted, is commend our chancellor, Dr. Kelly Brown, mm-hmm. um, for her courage to do the right thing and, and knowing that criticism is coming. Because I tell you what, given and where she, we are. She's new as well, right? I mean, within – about six months before you were hired, which yeah, is- that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. And Go ahead. No, absolutely. No, she's, um, you know, every, every decision that you make, 
the, the simplest thing. I wish I could tell you guys some of the stories <laughs> about uh, the simplest thing. Um, you, you know, you, you do something on one side and the group doesn't like it. You do something on the other side and the group doesn't like it. And, you know, it, it's, it's not a position for the, for the faint of heart, but, um, you know, she set a great example for this entire campus about simply doing what you, you feel is right. And we've been able to take that lead. Um, you know, two of the student athletes that came to me initially were Curtis Roach and, and, and Donnie Spencer okay. uh, came to me, came to Tiger. You, you got to know, you, you know, you're in a really good relationship with Coach Spear. You can call him Tiger. That's for sure. I'm, <laughs> we're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. But um, I've known Tiger for as long as, well, I don't know how long. I can't remember. So a great man. No doubt about that. An absolutely great man. Um but we've been able to have some really good dialogue with our student athletes uh, around this topic, social justice and, and things of that nature. In particular, uh, like you mentioned with the football team, um, they did come to me and, and, and they said that they wanted to, to do something and they were looking for some guidance. And all the guidance that I, I told them was is to really, you know, express their concerns. They, they wanted to express their concerns for some of the things that, that were happening on campus. And I simply, uh, said to come up with a plan and, and be able to articulate why you're wanting to mobilize yourselves in this fashion. And they did a great job of that. I'm very proud uh, of their execution uh, with the, the We United rally, mm-hmm. uh, W-H-E-E, as we like to do around here in Color We, um, and, and, and how inclusive they were with this, this as well. I mean, it was a united rally, and the chair of the board of trustees was there. Um, uh, the chancellor was there. Um, we, we had a lot of people, uh, an extremely diverse group. I saw the provost and other university leaders, um, students of all uh, backgrounds that were there to support something that they felt was important. Um, they didn't like some of the things that they felt were going on on their campus, and they wanted to just do something to show unity. And I was so proud of them to see that, um, and, and I wanted to support them in any way that we could. Um, we, we put a few things in place. Uh, that, that we wanted to do a few actionable things out of that as well. Um, just like many of the folks in the country, we wanted to make sure that our student athletes that wanted to be registered to vote were registered to vote. We had a, a very successful voting initiative um, in, in partnership with Lane Perry uh, and his group across campus. Um, we're we're going to start dialogue uh, between myself, a black former black student athlete here at Western, and our other minority student athletes, our current minority student athletes, just to to have open conversation about our experiences and, and have a, a forum and an outlet to, uh, to just do those types of things. Um, and we're also educating our staff. The university has a learning series throughout this entire calendar year that we're requiring our athletic staff to participate in. Um, and so we're doing a lot of things just to make sure that our student athletes understand that we're not numb to what's going on. Um, even though our, our area uh, sometimes feels a little bit different to, to some of the opinions uh, mm-hmm. out there. Um, we're not we're not numb to what's going on, and I just want to be able to support them in any way that I can. And I'm thankful to have a chancellor um, that understands how important that is as well. Yeah, I think that's um, that's great. That it sounds like there's institutional support for, as you said, taking some actionable steps, um, going beyond just kind of optical you know, anti-racism, you know, just rhetorical things. You know, I think sometimes it's it's easy for communities to say we stand against racism, you know, about overt expressions of racism. But then when it comes to, you know, real systemic and institutional change, that 
is harder, you know, for people um, and places where they're used to things going their way. And I, I know that you all signed um, a diversity pledge in 2020 about your your hiring um, processes with coaches. You still, you know, have an a, is it correct? They're still just all white coaches in terms of who um, are all your all your head coaches. Yes. And so um, I'm interested to hear more about how the. Um, the kind of educational piece, the formation piece, the, I mean, there's a certain amount of deprogramming that we need in this country. You know, if we truly want to do anti-racist work at an institutional level, you know, um, we all have to kind of deconstruct, especially white people have to deconstruct the way we've thought about decision-making and power and institutional structures and, all sorts of value systems that have to be, you know, taken apart and really looked at with a racial equity lens. And I wonder if if part of this diversity pledge kind of bundles in some some work at the institutional level around the hiring processes or if it's, it's more about representation in terms of who you interview or how do you see that kind of getting some flesh and oxygen to it. How, how does it hit the ground? Absolutely. Well, it, it is part of our institution's goal. Um, d- diversity is a strategic goal in, in the university strategic plan. As a matter of fact, um, I was having a conversation just yesterday with a, with a supporter about some of this stuff, you know, curious, asking the question, you know, why did we feel like it was important to do this and how does it fold into our plans? And I actually read him uh, just one line in the university strategic plan that it talks about broadening our commitment to diversity and inclusion by recruiting, retaining, and developing a diverse community. That's exactly what the pledge is about. And so, again, um, from Chancellor Belcher, continuing uh, with Chancellor Brown, um, th- this is this is uh, something that the entire campus has bought into, and and we're just following our campuses our campuses lead from that standpoint. We were approached very very early on about being an early adopter in this pledge. Um, and I was excited that the chancellor supported it. Um, the board of trustees supported it. It, it, didn't, it. And what I mean by that, it didn't go to a vote by the board of trustees, but they were aware of it and said, this is a great idea. Um, I felt that being an early doctor would, would send a really good message to our students, um, to our alumni about our desire to commit to continue, continuing to recruit a very diverse pool and, and hiring the best candidate out of that diverse pool. So, we're very excited about uh, participating in it. Since uh, this thing was first pushed out there to the public, um, I think that there's probably been three or four times as many schools that have opted in to sign signing this pledge. You know, schools in the Power Five and schools, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like like our size. So it's really been able to, to see this, you know, really grow momentum. You never want to have to hire a coach. You hope all your coaches are here and they're winning all their games and they'll stay forever and all that other kind of stuff, but. When it is time for us to, to you know, uh, hire another coach potentially, we'll make sure to um, have a have a diverse pool and, and pick the best candidate out of that pool, but make sure that there are opportunities provided to everyone.
visiting with Alex Gary, the Director of Athletics at Western Carolina University on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Going Deep on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Our guest is Alex Gary, the Director of Athletics at Western Carolina University. I think it's really important to note as well, like in the march that you had in August, I believe Western Carolina was the first one in the first university in North Carolina to adopt this pledge. And so leading from the front is a lot different than tagging on at the very end to be able to check something off the list. And I want to acknowledge that. With regards to coaching, you know, as you said, there's there's six, I think there's six men's team, varsity men's teams and eight varsity women's teams there. And all of the head coaches uh, in those programs are, are white. I would like to talk about, though, another form of diversity and just and get your opinion. And I want to acknowledge you haven't even been there for a year yet. So you haven't hired or fired or coach and and hope you don't. But our daughter is a junior right now and is a cross country runner and is looking at schools. And one of the things that we talk about is women coaching women uh, in sports in six of the eight coaches in your women's sports at Western North Carolina are coached by men. And with regards to that diversity pledge that you've talked about, I don't know, could you speak to that at all or whatever intentions might be in that regard? Because that's something that our daughter right now really thinks about as she's looking at school. That's a great question. And nobody's ever asked me that question, but I can guarantee you it's something that I've noticed and I've thought about. In intercollegiate athletics, um, you, you threw out the statistics about our head coaches. When you even look at our senior staff, my senior staff, um, until we, we um, uh, took on a new business manager who, who was a female, once one of our business managers retired, we had all men on the senior staff and one female, and she was the senior woman's administrator. And as you look around that room, it just doesn't look right. It doesn't feel right, to be quite honest with you. I do so, feel. But what's very interesting about that question is that I've talked to uh, someone that played intercollegiate athletics as a female and was told, uh, someone that I know very well and trust very well, that they prefer to play for a male coach, which was surprising to me. Uh, I didn't really understand why. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I personally like the idea of, of our female student athletes getting an opportunity to be coached by female head coaches. Um, uh, that's just my, my personal idea around it and, and, and feelings towards it. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think as we look to recruit, if we have to make a, a change in one of those sports, um, that's something that I'll pay a, a lot of attention to because there's, there's definitely some imbalance uh, as it relates to uh, uh, gender equity amongst our head coaches right now. Thank you. I just I I was a collegiate athlete and all my coaches were men. They're I love them. They're like other dads to me. So I, I'm not I don't 
think there's an essential statement we can make that's gendered about what's better or worse. But for me, it's it's more about, you know, just kind of access for for women in the world of coaching. There's some great women athletes out there that are great coaches. And so I don't think it's necessarily about coaching women, coaching women, but women coaching, period. You know, get some women to coach your men's basketball team or your men's track team. Yeah, your football team. Yeah, Two women coached in the Super Bowl this year. Yeah, because I just think, um, you know, that's – that's part of, as you said, the kind of going in with the pledge and the commitments of the university to, to nurture, um, to nurture an environment where all kinds of different people are able to thrive and and use their gifts and your, their leadership. And Marsha, I want to uh, something that I said, and I, it's so funny because I'm usually very aware of, of things that I say, but I don't know in intercollegiate athletics or in professional sports if we have any women coaching men's teams mm-hmm. it is so um unheard of and I, I didn't even think about that mm-hmm. but i actually have thought about um carol lawson just got the head coaching job this past year at, at duke on their women's side mm-hmm. and regardless you know carol lawson's you know she's this unbelievable player the university right. tends to be unbelievable announcer and, and it's going to do a really good job. We actually played them this year before they stopped their season. Uh, we played them in, in women's basketball. And, I, you know, I, I, I have thought about things like that. I've thought about what if you bring in a Carol Lawson type of person to be the very first female to coach a men's basketball team in Division One, or maybe in Sounds division. awesome. That would I'd be come, that Yeah. Would be I'd come to that party. That sounds good. <laughs> And she kicked butt too. It, actually, there, there there was a woman. There was, a, 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 I guess, in the '90s when Rick Pitino was at Kentucky. Yeah, he was the first varsity. It may have happened in lower levels, but uh, Division One coach to hire a woman assistant, uh, and, and she was an assistant uh, on the on the staff. I can't remember her name. But it's happening more and more in football. And yes. son of a gun, I've gotten to know a handful of women football coaches that I've thought to myself, keep an eye on that. <laughs> keep an eye on that woman. She can coach football. She can coach. Well, what I like about what um, athletic director Gary just said is the head coach. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> yes. And, and I want to acknowledge that. I mean, I, I think Becky Hammond with the Spurs is going to be a head NBA coach in the near future. And just, just things that you've said so far, you know, Mr. Gary, you're talking about leading from the front. You know, you were the first in late August to have a March in North Carolina to join this, uh, uh, you know, this pledge, you know, leading from the front is important. Um, you know, I have a question about the economics because you are in perhaps the most interesting economical situation of anybody. And for our listeners, I don't know how many teams did this, but Western played three football games in the fall. And so you played in the fall three games. You're going to have eight games here in the spring. Could you talk us through kind of the dynamics of that? And then I also want to get into the economics of, you know, uh, 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 sports at 
the level of the Southern Conference because Furman, for instance, has dropped baseball. And I know Western with Bobby Miranda ain't going to drop, and you are not going to drop baseball. It's one of the strongest programs in the in the Southeast. But uh, how teams are wrestling with those budgetary restraints now because football is a big money maker. So let's start with two seasons of football, fall and spring, and then bridge that kind of how the finances of that help regarding other sports. Because as of now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Western has not eliminated any sports. No, we have not. No, the, the, I'll, I'll speak about it philosophically before I speak about it financially. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we were not ready to play football in the fall of 2020. Uh, we weren't ready, not physically and, and from a, a game preparation standpoint, but we were not ready to handle all the things that COVID brought our way because we didn't we we don't have the the expertise, the medical expertise. That's one of the reasons we uh, had an agreement with the U.S. Council for Athletes Health to help us navigate our way through um, through what this looks like. Um, but what we said was we wanted to move all of our non-conference contests when when when. Southern Conference sports football was was moved to the spring. We said we were given an opportunity by the conference to still play non-conference games. We weren't ready to do that in August or even in September. And so we moved them all to the end of the year for a couple of reasons. One, if, if football was being played in the country by the time we got to November, then we should be smart enough to know how to do it, how to travel, how to meet, how to practice all those sorts of things, because we would have had several examples from larger institutions that were playing football starting in September, how to do it. And so we wanted to take time to learn and ask those questions. Secondly, you know, our football program had something like 52 redshirt or true freshmen, guys that needed to play, guys that needed some structure and needed to learn the system. And to come into that situation um, uh, being able to, you know, not being able to play in that fall semester and all those, those sorts of things. I, you know, we, we made the decision that playing would be helpful from that standpoint too. Another reason why we made uh, the decision to play really late is that we wanted to shorten the window between the time that um, we played in the fall semester and we started practicing in the spring semester because our consultants through the U.S. Uh, Council of Athletes Health said that that would be the smartest thing to do from a, a muscle uh, recovery breakdown and build back up standpoint, all those technical things. Financially, we were approached by the University of North Carolina. This was actually kind of funny. Back in sep uh, early September, I got a call. Uh, I'll give you, a, I just signed a football game uh, 10 years from now, in 2031 with the team. So the scheduling is getting way out there. North, North Carolina called. Uh, on maybe like a Tuesday or something like that and said, Hey, can you guys play next weekend? <laughs> and and we said, well, we haven't even started practicing yet. And so we need to, we need to practice first. Uh, and so it, we, we did end up scheduling them a game, but, but in December, mm -hmm. again, to shorten that window between the spring season and the fall season financially um, that did uh, come with a benefit um, this year, we're going to lose out on, we're not going to be able to have very many fans in the stands at all, certainly not paying fans um, this year at all. We're not going to be able to generate as much money through uh, donations, potentially sponsorships, concessions, and things of that nature. And so in order to 
uh, give our student athletes the same experience in sports like baseball, soccer, golf, you name it, to be able to play all the games that they wanted to play in the spring semester, we needed to find a way to make up that revenue. And so that's how um, the, the fall semester and the spring semester came together, both philosophically, philosophically from an X's and O standpoint and financially. Um, we did ask the players, the football players, we took an anonymous poll of the football players and asked them if they wanted to play the UNC game at all. You know, they were going to play Gardner-Webb. They were originally going to play Gardner-Webb Liberty in Eastern Kentucky. Gardner-Webb decided not to play in the fall initially. So they had the game against Liberty. They had the game against Eastern Kentucky. We asked them if they wanted to play a third game. And by and large, uh, they, they wanted to play that game. Um, and so we, we decided to sign that game. Uh, we walked out of that game with no injuries, thankfully. And, uh, and we're able to, to secure ourselves financially a little bit for operations this spring where we have all the games that you ever want to come to uh, with all the Olympic sports as well as football and basketball. With all you had to navigate, I mean, that's that's such an interesting story, just of all the different layers of what you have to take into account. I like that you started your answer with student-athlete well-being. I think that is probably a rarity <laughs> um, uh, among athletic directors. Uh, we've been around um, this business for a long time, and um, I mean, you've already said it. It's a business. And I do believe that there were several instances um, during COVID of schools making business decisions that weren't in the best interests of student-athlete well-being. It wouldn't be the first time that happened in collegiate sports, that's for sure. I'm wondering, like, with all your care and with all the kind of metrics that you use for well-being and um do you feel like it worked? In other words, have you been able to keep your athletes safe um, from COVID? Has it been a pretty, you know, kind of when you look at the how, the cost benefit analysis of it, has it been a season in which you feel like you all's decisions really did play out to keep students well and to keep them, um, you know, grounded in the fact that they're in a community that actually cares about their health and yeah. and their well-being. I think that's a very tough question to answer. And the reason I, I, I say that is not a cop-out, but one of the big nervous pieces about uh, participating in interclusion athletics or really anything around COVID was there was no idea what the long-term health impacts would be. And so uh, I don't know if any of us know if we made the best decision, uh, if we're going to know that for six months, 12 months, two years, it's, it's hard to tell. But I do know in, in terms of being able to keep them safe, we've had COVID cases. Everybody in the country has had COVID cases. Um, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not different at, at all from that standpoint. But I actually, just before we, we hopped on here, because I thought this question may come up about our COVID cases, I asked our senior women's administrator, Stacy. Um, and we were only able to look at the, the information from the spring. We weren't able to tally the fall and summer numbers. I didn't give her uh, enough time for that. But we've tested just this spring semester since January. 
we've tested, we've had uh, about 1,850 COVID tests, 1,850. And we're just, you know, middle of February now yeah. and basically six weeks. Um, and we're testing more than we're required to by the NCAA. We test sports that the NCAA does not force us to test. And we do it because we think it's the right thing to do before we send eight golfers in a van somewhere to play in Georgia all together where they're, you know, in close quarters and so on and so forth. Even though golf is naturally a socially distant sport, we decide to test them. Um, we don't have to do that. We, we're just doing that. Our positivity rate um, is, and I'm proud of that. I'm, I'm proud of our positivity rate. I don't want to say it's, I'm not going to sit here and pat ourselves on the back and say it's all because of the great work we've been doing. Um, but our positivity rate's 0.5 uh, so far. That's really good. 100, yeah. Uh, yeah, 1,800 tests. And so I wish it was zero. And, and hopefully in the fall semester, we can all get past this and, and, and hit more zeros and, and not have the couple cases here and there pop up. But um, in terms of the right decisions, it's something that, you know, I, 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 it still keeps me up a little bit at night. You just yeah. never know. You, you just never know until, um, and, 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 until, you know, some years go by. Uh, but That's right. ultimately, yeah. I, I think that we've done as good a job as we as we could have. I never think anything's perfect, but I'm I'm pretty proud of our staff and how they've come together to to handle this situation. Yeah, that's really good. And I think, um, again, going over and beyond, I'm a, I'm a pastor of a church, and you know, there's always, you know, if you're going to just go with technicalities, that's not always what's best for people. And I mean, I feel like in a community, we are called to to do more, to go over and beyond, to to take the extra steps, to um, try to keep people well. So I really affirm all of that. Listening to Going Deep on Blue Ridge Public Radio, and we'll be right back with more of our conversation with Athletic Director Alex Gary at Western Carolina University. Welcome back to Going Deep on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're excited to continue our conversation with Athletic Director Alex Gary at Western Carolina University. John and I have been very involved in um, conversations around head injuries um, and co- among collegiate athletes, and we've been really excited at turns about, you know, some of the research that's out there, and, and, and then we're at turns frustrated that those um, new findings and new ways to keep student athletes safe are not adopted by a lot of schools. And I wonder if you, if there's a way to kind of apply this approach you've taken to COVID, which I really affirm, and how does that translate into head injuries um, and, and kind of taking that extra step, going beyond what you're, you have to do for compliance and, and saying, well, this is the right thing to do because we actually know from the science that, you know, this is dangerous or this is like, you know, high contact practices in football. That's 
it's a bad idea, you know. How how does that kind of translate for you in terms of student uh-huh. wellness? That's, that's a great question, and, and that's one of the reasons, again, we, we uh, went into this multi-year agreement with the U.S. Council for Athletes Health. Just to explain that very, very briefly, um, you know, the U.S. Council for Athletes Health is made up of doctors from around the country, many of which are team physicians for Power 5 schools, Oregon State University, Ohio State University. Um, we had all of our students and their parents talk to uh, the, the team doctor at Ohio State University and a team doctor that's a uh, doctor at the Mayo Clinic, who was actually speaking to our students and our parents from the NBA bubble uh, this past year. And so that level of expertise and that level of quality is what we needed um, in, in order, because we don't have a full-time team physician. We have a fantastic team physician, uh, but no one full-time dedicated to athletics. And so we, you know, navigating COVID and other things um, are, are extremely important. But as it relates to head injuries, that's, that's part of the relationship. You know, when they were telling us all the things that came with the relationship, you know, there were things like catastrophic injury prevention and, 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 and concussion prevention and things like that, um, that we'll continue to have great dialogue with that group about how do we do the best things we can for our student athletes. Um, Tiger, uh, as you affectionately call him, John, is one of the, the, the best coaches that you can ever have in terms of caring about the health of the student athletes. And so um, he was excited about the partnership. He's doing things in his practices that are best for the student athletes. He's very aware. He's been coaching a very, very long time. Um, one of the things that I've noticed recently that we don't have, and, I, and I've been on websites looking at these things recently, um, some of these schools you go to, they wear these pads on their helmets um, to, per, to lessen those blows every single, every single time you come into contact with someone. And as soon as I saw that, I'm like, I've seen that before somewhere. That may be something we need to consider. What's the research behind that? And so not, not being uh, a, someone that has a lot of medical expertise myself, we wanted to align ourselves with the best people we could to provide that expertise in a number of different areas and concussions and, and, and head trauma is certainly one of those. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that you say it, just the wheels are turning in my head. I, I coached, I was an offensive coordinator in the NFL for a long time. And counterintuitively, late in the week, oftentimes on Fridays, we had baseball cap practices. Uh, because the way to keep your head out of someone is to not have a helmet on at all. And you find that, you know, how many times have you heard a football coach on the field say, hey, stay up, don't take them to the ground? It's a bit counterintuitive, but once you learn it in the NFL now, and I've I've talked to some colleges and they've started doing it as well. Late in the week, they start using baseball caps. You know, we we used to call it baseball cap day because you ain't putting your head in there if you don't have your helmet on. But with regards to COVID and the students' well-being, I really appreciate that you said there is risk and we just don't know what will happen two years, five years down the road. So many people that we've talked to, you know, in athletics won't even acknowledge it. Just, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, pretend like it that's not even an issue. I can't tell you how refreshing it is to hear a person say, we acknowledge that that there's risk in this, you know, and that you're always trying to be out in front of it. And, and also that you had open communication with players. I talked to a lot of coaches in the NFL 
the thought that have said to me, this is crazy. Why are we doing this? The fact that players were at least involved in that decision, not that they made the decision, not that, but that they had a voice, um, that's meaningful. I, I, I think that's meaningful. I think there's 34 football playing schools in the state of North Carolina. And in my opinion, Western North Carolina is the only one that can win a national championship. Let that sink in for a second. We, we, we coached at North Carolina. We got to number five in the country, but I don't think they're capable of winning a national championship. In my opinion, App State never should have left, you know, the FCS. They, they were once capable of doing it. I actually believe, sneakily, Western Carolina is the only school in this state that's capable of winning a football national championship. I I really believe that. Football pushes the economics for so many places, for so many other sports, as you said, and you're not going to fill the stadium uh, 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 this, this spring. Could you talk about the other sports and the push in the pool? Because I know there are schools in the Southern Conference, and I'm talking about Furman, for instance, eliminating baseball. Uh, Russell Dinkins is a a friend of ours that we're going to have on this show, probably the episode after you, and he's fighting to keep men's tracks programs alive, you know, on campuses and has had some success and some failures. But as an AD, could you talk about the push in the pool of, well, trying to keep some of these smaller Olympic sports alive? Because as of now, they are at Western. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I'd love to talk to people about stuff like this because uh, not all departments are created equal and they make decisions based on different reasons, right? So in order to stay division one, you have to have 14 sports. Um, we have 16 and uh, you, you probably know this, but the, the, the 16 is kind of a false number because men's indoor track, men's outdoor track, men's uh, women's indoor track, women's outdoor track and men's women's cross country are six sports. I got you. Sure. And so, um, you know, Furman had 20 sports and they cut baseball and men's lacrosse to save $2.7 million annually. Well, when you think about that, baseball has 11.7 scholarships the NCAA allows you to have. Furman's tuition is over $50,000. So if you take 50,000 times 12, that's $600,000. I don't know how many lacrosse has, and then all the you know salaries and facilities and yada, yada, yada that's associated with that. Um, I will say that I think many institutions, and I don't, I love Furman's new athletic director. I think he's fantastic, and I, I respect a lot of uh, what they what they do there. I do think some schools made the choice to uh, cut programs because this was a good opportunity to do something they've been wanting to do for a while. Um, we're funded very differently. We're fortunate enough here to have NC Promise, where tuition in, in state is only five hundred dollars, um, and so you know, cutting a sport doesn't save us that much money. Um, and, and quite honestly, I don't want to cut any sports. <laughs> I like all of our sports. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, uh, we're, we're funded in, in large part by, by student fees. And we're fortunate enough that the students, um, we're still able to, to, we're still able to collect those fees, um, this year. And so, um, when you think about the power five and other conferences, I mean, I think the big 10 
annual distributions is something like $54 million a school because of TV and all that other kind of stuff. When I was at Michigan, they used to make a million dollars a game on parking. And so when you hear some of these significant numbers of $30 million deficits and $50 million deficits, that's just not us. We're not in that same boat where we, you know, we're, we, we cut a sport. It doesn't do anything. I've, I've looked at numbers just for entertainment purposes to be able to answer questions like this. It doesn't, it doesn't, we're not in a position. We don't have to, we don't have to do that. Thankfully uh, mm-hmm. right now, and hopefully we never have to do that. So every school is so much different. Um, Furman made a decision that was best for them. What they would say from cutting baseball and lacrosse is way greater than what we would say by cutting baseball and, and any other sport. Um, Title IX is something that we always have to keep an eye on as well. Um, and so uh, all those things play into those decisions. Could you say more about the in-state tuition? Did, did I hear you right? If if you're in-state, it's five hundred dollars. Yeah. So um, uh, Western North Carolina, Western Carolina University, Elizabeth Elizabeth City, uh, and uh, UNC Pembroke are all what, what's called um, NC Promise schools, which basically means that uh, in-state tuition is only five hundred dollars, which is fantastic. When that went into play a few years ago, it's it saved us a tremendous amount of money. And allowed us to be able to invest in our sports more so in the in the ways that we need to. Now that you know, it's not just five hundred dollars. When you look at housing and dining and right, fees right. and all that kind of stuff, um, it kind of adds up. But in terms of tuition, um, wow. it's, it's it's a steal. So, and those are the those are the things we have to pay for now. You know, we pay for all of our student athletes that are on scholarship, pay that uh, to the university, and so you know, paying a five hundred dollar tuition is much more manageable than something much higher. Yeah, especially like some of the private schools, like you said, at at Affirmin. So that that makes sense. Do you encourage coaches to really recruit in-state as much as possible? Yeah, out-of-state is also a discounted tuition. I want to say it's $2,000 or $2,500 in in certain regions and areas. We we typically, especially before NC Promise, there was a whole formula that the the previous administration had for – the amount of uh, out-of-state scholarships and in-state scholarships that coaches were able to go out and and, um, and offer. Um, it, but now we're more in a position where we were able to give uh, our coaches more flexibility. Um, you know, go out and get the best possible kids that you can get um, wherever they are. Obviously, it's, it's always nice to be able to get some in-state kids if you can and have those relationships with those coaches is something that we are going to continue to discuss. But 
we're not as restricted maybe as we were before NC Promise was instituted mm-hmm. a few years ago. That's great. That's interesting. Yeah, that's really great. Absolutely. So last thing, how did you get the courage? I know when we were in the NFL, we coached it at the Panthers, probably while you were at Butler High School, I was with the Panthers and then uh, the Bears and then the Buccaneers. And it took every ounce of courage we had to move across the country to (laughs) Oakland. We moved to Oakland and we loved it. How did you manage the wherewithal to like Corvallis, Oregon? Had you ever been there before? Were you like, what am I doing? Holy moly. This is a everybody says, well, it's only a phone call. It ain't a phone call. It's four heads, time zones, it's three connections. It's, huh? How was that? You know, I I always wanted to be an athletic director. And in this business, whether you're a coach or you're an administrator in intercollegiate athletics, if you want to continue to to grow in your career, especially if you have goals by certain ages and things like that, you have to move. And and I was aware of that from day one. Um, I'd moved from Charlotte to, to Michigan, from Michigan to D.C., from D.C. to Corvallis. The only other time I had been to the state of Oregon is playing minor league baseball up that way uh, in, in, in A-ball back in the day when I was living in Everett, Washington. So yeah. moving there, not having any family anywhere around is certainly an intimidating thing. Uh, but I also think that uh, it was a huge blessing because, as I mentioned before, I was able to meet my beautiful wife there. Amen. Um, and I tell you what, that was without question uh, the best part of that move. But overall, I'll, I'll say this also. We love the state of Oregon. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to go back once a year. Um, we've already uh, committed to that. Um, we, we went back there to get married and, and climbed a mountain on a 12-mile hike, which I'm still feeling the effects <laughs> of. And so uh, it, it'll always be a big part of our lives. Is your wife from there, from she's Oregon? From, she's actually from Michigan. Oh, she's from enough. Michigan. Okay. She, okay. she played Division two basketball at Ferris State. So she's okay. an athlete. Great. Well, John and I had to go all the way to England to meet each other. So sometimes oh, you just sometimes you just go where you you don't know why you're going, but you go, absolutely, <laughs> and then you figure it out. Absolutely. Well, what a gift to have this time with you, and True. we're gonna be um, we're gonna be rooting for you and praying for you, and we hope you'll count us as friends and supporters here, and we'll have you back, you know, in a couple of years and just check in, see how you're doing and how things have been going with all your, you know, great goals and lofty plans, but also just, um, really values that have a lot of integrity. Um, and I think, um, you just, we support your, your focus on the wellness of student athletes and on, um, this, uh, what I would call a very community oriented way of running an athletic department, which, um, is just great to see. I'm just so glad to meet you and get to have this time with you. Thank you guys so much for, for having me too. we got a lot of work to do here at Western, but I'm excited about it. And, you know, until somebody tells me we can't move forward with some of the things we're trying to do, um, we're going to, we're going to move forward as quickly as we can and try to turn this thing around, but I'm excited to be here. It's good to be home. I look forward to connecting with you guys again in the future.
You've been listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. And make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.